listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslu, and today it's the morning of Sunday, the 28th of November in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom from Hong Kong by CNN international correspondent Will Ripley to talk to me about his experience of reporting on North Korea from within North Korea. Now, before we get started, I'd like to remind all of you listening, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and that's so that we don't disappear down the internet abyss of ignorance and people can find us and listen to us. And while you're at it, do share this episode with everyone you know and three people who you don't. I'd like to reach 1% of Joe Rogan's audience by year's end. Uh, let's see if we can do it. Uh, with your help, perhaps we can. Second, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. And third, have you looked at the 2022 NK News wall calendar? I have one here right beside me, ready to hang up at the end of this year. 14 great photographs taken in North Korea by non-North Korean photographers. There's only 850 available for purchase. Stocks will run out. It's a great limited edition gift idea for Christmas, which is just around the corner. You can find that and more. And also the uh, NK News organogram, uh, which shows all the leadership of North Korea. I should mess with my camera there to show it a little bit better. There you go. It's hanging on the wall behind me. Uh, and that is something that I make reference to and and check constantly so you can find that at nknews.org slash shop and if you have feedback questions or guest recommendations please send them to podcast at nknews.org now to introduce my guest today properly will ripley is a correspondent for cnn he's based at the network's asia pacific headquarters in hong kong will has been a broadcast journalist since 2004 and has traveled to north korea 19 times since 2014 more than any american tv correspondent he has reported exclusively from Pyongyang after missile launches and nuclear tests and was the only American journalist in North Korea when U.S. prisoner Otto Warmbier was released just days before his death in 2017. You can find Will on Twitter at WillRipleyCNN. Welcome on the show, Will. Hey, Jacko, I have a question for you. Yes. How did you guys come up with the name or Organogram? That is a great question. I, I think somebody found that uh, apparently it's a one word equivalent of organizational chart and it's a bit, sh bit shorter oh. than organizational chart. It sounds like something I'd see on like those calculus lessons on Pornhub where there was that Taiwanese guy that was teaching calculus on Pornhub. What? The organogram. Is yeah, did you hear about that? No. <laughs> yeah. So he's fully clothed and he does calculus lessons on Pornhub and he has this huge following because people tune in thinking they're going to see something explicit and then they get a calculus lesson. And he says he makes like 200,000 US dollars a year teaching calculus on Pornhub, which makes me think that maybe we should start, if you don't want to disappear to the internet abyss of nothingness, yes. maybe we should start putting content on Pornhub. Maybe we'll get We'll get a wider audience. Who knows? I'll, I'll definitely discuss that with the management uh, of NK News at our next meeting. <laughs> yeah. uh, although, uh, you know, I can, I can tell you how far that discussion would go with my management. <laughs> well, and, uh, game theory suggests to me that uh, that guy, after his first lesson, he wouldn't have a lot of repeat customers, you would think. Uh, it's a growing following. I mean, maybe he's on to something. I don't know. Wow. Not okay. that I've actually watched because it is actually in Chinese and I, I don't, I'm studying Mandarin, but I'm, I'm not so fluent, so I wouldn't really get much out of it at this stage. Right. And calculus is a very, you know, it's a particular subset of vocabulary. It's not the sort of stuff that you do sure. in every textbook. My brain's not wired that way. Yeah. <laughs> I can barely speak English. But you're doing fine so far. Uh, let, let's see how right. it goes. Uh, now, the reason we're doing this interview now is uh, we thought that you know, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Wire Service AP opening its own bureau in Pyongyang. So I thought this is a great time to get together some journalists and talk about doing journalism 
from within North Korea. Uh, I recently spoke to your CNN predecessor, Mike Chinoy, who also reported from within North Korea. He only had uh, 17 visits to your 19, so you've just sort of pipped yeah. him at the post a little bit. Uh, now, it seems like there were some years after Mike's time when CNN wasn't going into North Korea. Perhaps it wasn't welcome. Do you know anything about that period? It's interesting. It's kind of come in waves. I mean, we haven't been inside North Korea since late 2017, and it was right before the Korean detente with President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Right. Once the North Korean government felt that they couldn't use the outside media as much anymore because they had a direct line to Washington, our access was cut. And then, of course, we were supposed to go back in for trip number 20 just before the pandemic. We were having those discussions. But once North Korea closed their borders and they've been hermetically sealed ever since, we've just can kind of been in a waiting period. We'd love to go back, yeah. but not sure when that's going to be able to happen. Well, tell us about your first trip to North Korea. Uh, when was it? How did it come about? And how did CNN uh, renew relations after a, a, a bit of silence between Mike Chinoy and you? Well, there were a lot of people at CNN uh, ahead of me in line when I first started as a correspondent back in 2014 to go to North Korea. But I just so happened to be based in Tokyo. And I went to their de facto embassy there for a meeting, uh, just seeing if there's any chance that we could get access, that we could get a visa. And kind of on a fluke, when I was in Ukraine, actually, covering uh, covering th this this Russian convoy of white trucks heading ominously towards the towards the border with Ukraine, and of course, all the fighting in eastern Ukraine at that time, I thought I was getting ready to head out, you know, and actually do some war zone coverage. And then I get a message that uh, a visa has come through for this oh. for this trip to North Korea with this Japanese sports delegation. So it was like a pro wrestling tournament uh, oh. in Pyongyang. So it was really the, the the trip had a lot of feature reports in it. You know, of course, we get the two, the usual government guided sightseeing tour. We saw the new water park. We went to you know we went to the museums. We saw the monuments. We saw the Juche Tower. And when we were out, uh, you know, we were out having lunch one afternoon. Uh, I was actually pulled out of lunch. My producer, my cameraman, and I were pulled out of lunch, and I thought we were in trouble. When I had first arrived, uh, my boss, Elena Lee, said, make sure that you ask to speak with the three detained Americans who were there. And I thought, that's a crazy ask. Who the heck is going to let, you know, an American journalist speak with, uh, you know, with three Americans that they're holding on, you know, various charges? Uh, and yet we were pulled out of that lunch just a couple, like it was a day or two before the trip was supposed to end put in a van, not told where we were going. And then we got we got those interviews with Kenneth Bay, uh, Jeffrey Fowle, and Matthew Miller. And so we basically were told by a, an official in full uniform, we had five minutes with each. We had to stick to basically topics pertaining to how they were being treated, how you know what the charges were against them, if they had a message for their families. And if we strayed beyond those topics, uh, we might not make our own flight out the next day. Well, that, that was what was said to you, or that's what you in inferred? Yeah. No, that's what we were told. They were, they said we hate it, we'd hate it if you missed your flight. Wow. So uh, okay. I was extraordinarily tense and nervous, but we went from room to room, kept the camera rolling the whole time, did the interviews. I obviously had done a lot of research about these three ahead of time on the off chance that we would actually have that request granted. Uh, but we did, and we did the interviews, and it took over the network on, um, it was, was it like on Labor Day, I think, if I, if I recall correctly? It's been so long. Uh, and then, and then we, we got on our flight. And I remember one of my colleagues in New York uh, sending me a message saying, hey, this is really a career changing moment for you. I, I, I didn't really appreciate or realize that at the time, but it, but it certainly was. Why is it important for <laughs> CNN to do reporting from inside North Korea? What's the value added? The value added is, is that when you're on the ground anywhere, you always have a chance to get more than just what you're seeing through state media, what you're seeing through North Korean propaganda, what analysts in various cities and experts who have a very, very valuable perspective are telling you. But when you're on the ground, you always have that opportunity to 
of course you're going to have a stage managed trip but you have yeah. to try to look you know just behind the curtain peek behind the curtain if you will and see if you can have that offhand authentic conversation with a real person or with a north korean official or uh, if you happen to see something that could maybe spark a question in your mind that 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 allows you to to dig a little deeper next time. And so every trip inside North Korea, I felt like we peeled back the layer of the onion a little more. That said, you also do realize the more you travel there, just how much you really don't know and how yeah. much uh, you can understand how the system works. You can understand, I think, more about how people think. Certainly for me as an American, I had one set of views about North Korea going in that first time. Um, I would say that I feel differently about North Korean society today. Mm. Uh, but again, it's also been a few years since I've since I've been in. So yeah. who knows, you know, if or when the next time I go, I go back, how my mm. view will be changed again. Yeah. You mentioned meeting high level officials. Who was the highest level North Korea official that you met in, in all of your 19 trips? Well, the highest level that I can talk to you about, because there were other there were other meetings that were more secretive that I can't discuss. But uh, we actually interviewed a former ambassador, Ri Jong Ryul, back in 2016, and uh, it was a you know it was a, it was a great interview. It was a great interview to, to sit down and, t and talk with him. Uh, he talked at that time tensions were very high with President Trump uh, mm -hmm. and Kim and Kim Jong Un, and it was a, a valuable way to kind of get a direct line from a government official to get a message. Uh, that would be seen in Washington. But I can tell you that there have been other meetings with people who are much higher up on the food chain. Oh. Um, as we try to work towards, you know, we've, we've always had the goal of getting an interview with, uh, with Kim Jong-un. Sure. Uh, hasn't happened yet. No, no one's gotten it yet. Uh, but we certainly intend to keep trying to do that. Right. Okay. And it was their request that you not mention uh, those names outside That's of right. the meetings? Yeah, okay. all, yeah, these meetings were, these are meetings that are, you know, you, you never have any really substantive conversations over the phone or email with North Korea. Uh, you're in person yeah. and there's always secrecy. I mean, even within the country, I think the biggest misconception that some people have about North Korea is that it's some sort of, you know, all-knowing big brother uh, entity where, uh, but in fact, it's a, it's a really complicated bureaucracy in one department isn't talking to the next, isn't talking to the next. So there's no. there's a lot of secrecy even amongst the various the various government agencies about what the other one is doing. And so yes, for the sake of protecting uh, our access and our agreement to to, to not disclose. Uh, mm. But we've had some very interesting meetings, off the record meetings, where you learn a lot that you wish you could report on television, but we right. can't, at least not yet. Now, when you're doing reporting in North Korea, you're always dependent on uh, interpreters who are supplied to you by the North Korean government, aren't you? We are. However, we, because I do not speak Korean fluently, and some have actually argued that that might be an advantage, although part of me wishes that secretly I was fluent in Korean and could just understand everything, but I don't. Right. That's the honest truth. We do send everything to our own translators to be verified in terms of actual interviews and such. Ah. Uh, but but that's how that's how we have to operate. And I think yeah. in some ways they like it that way. Maybe that's why they kept yeah. inviting me back, because they they they, yeah. they 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 could have conversations and I wouldn't always necessarily know everything that's being said. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that there might not be other people that I travel with that might might or might not understand. But right. from for me personally, uh, yeah. I do not. I do not speak Korean. One of my big regrets, actually, is that I didn't that I'm not fluent in Korean. I think that would be a really useful skill to have. Uh, right now, as I said, I'm studying. I'm studying Mandarin, but maybe the next language to study, if I can get my 40-year-old brain to to learn a little more Chinese, would be to to try to get a little more fluent in Korean. Yes. Do you do you think that that's any more or less a handicap in North Korea than in other countries where uh, a CNN reporter doesn't necessarily speak the local language? 
I think as long as you have a really strong support staff and you have people on your team who are fluent, who can not only translate, but also give you even beyond that kind of, you know, help you to get the context. I mean, a lot of North Korea, a lot of connecting with North Koreans for me is about, it's about eye contact. It's about really trying to dive in and understand the culture and understand the feelings, you know, about not just understand the facts or understand the technical translation, but connect on a, on a more person to person level. And I think in, in that on that level, I've definitely had some success. And I do consider some of our longtime government minders to be, certainly you wouldn't say they're friends, but they're mm. very, we have a very warm and cordial and professional uh, relationship and know each other pretty well. Did you, would you say that you had uh, the same mind as an interpreters all the way through the 19 trips? Not, not consistently all of them, but, but a few of them, yes, have been the same ones from the beginning. Right. And then, yeah, I guess you can, you can certainly build up a rapport with them over time, can't you? Yeah, yeah, I miss them. I miss them. It's been a while. We still keep in regular contact, but it's tough to not be able to go in and see each other face to face. There was one year, 2017, I think I went in eight times. I, wow. I've celebrated three birthdays in North Korea. Uh, but, you know, ever since the detente, the access has really dried up, which, which was a good thing when it looked like the situation was heading in a positive direction. Where we find ourselves now, yeah. uh, I really would like to get back in after the pandemic, because I think we have a lot of things we'd like to see and a lot of stories that we'd like to tell. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, after you come out, you always send uh, the recordings of, of Korean conversations to CNN's own. Oh, during. Uh, oh, oh, during. during. No, we feed them back. Yeah, okay. because we were, we're turning stories every day when we're there, usually. And so uh, the process of getting those stories written and scripted includes getting a rush translation. And so oh, we actually have people on standby wow. to take the audio files and get them translated for us uh, yeah. very quickly. And did you ever find that there was a, a strong discrepancy between what the North Korean provided interpreter was saying and what your CNN interpreter was saying? We had a meeting uh, with actually Ambassador Ryul, who, uh, Ri Jong Ryul, who I, who I uh, was able to interview on camera. Uh, this was right around the time that Kim Jong-un's brother had been assassinated. And we oh, were yeah. over dinner having a conversation about that. Uh, and uh, the translators uh, didn't actually translate any portion of, of what I asked about that, about the assassination. They wouldn't translate it because there were service staff in the room uh, who probably uh, didn't even know that, his, that he had a brother. Uh, yeah. And certainly that was that was too sensitive of a topic to be discussed, even, uh, you know, in an off the record dinner setting. Right. But the ambassador, of course, being an ambassador, he would have understood what you were saying, right? He sure did. Yeah. And yeah. With, the response was basically he hears you, but we're not going to talk about that now. Ooh, okay. So, all right. And we so, suggest that you don't talk about that much when you're in the country, which we, you know, we still did talk about it. But uh, right. yeah, I mean, that's the kind of pressure that you get. It's never, you know, I've never actually, the only country I've ever worked in where I've deleted a piece of video was in Istanbul, Turkey, at a protest when I had a police officer threaten to throw me in, in jail for two weeks because I actually was there reporting without a, without a formal right. uh, press badge. I had just arrived in Gosh. and, uh, and I had taken a picture with him in it. And he said, if you don't delete this picture, I'm going to break your, your face. I'm going to throw you in jail. And since we were actually just there to observe and weren't planning on covering that, I, yeah. that was the only time in more than 20 years of journalism that I have agreed to delete a clip of video. And it was a picture from my phone, but I've never done it in North Korea. Gosh. If we take it, if we get it on camera, it's fair game, but certainly there's a lot of pressure from minders don't point your camera there, point right. your camera this way. I mean, they, they, they certainly set things up to try to make them look spontaneous. And it's our job to see through that and try yeah. to find what's real in, in the situation. Did you ever see that documentary by a, uh, I forget the title now, but it was by a, a Russian person, I believe, a Russian film crew, where they're, they're filming uh, things in, in, a, in a family's apartment in North Korea, but they also have another camera that's filming 
the the setups you know the uh, the mind is saying now you sit here and uh, act all spontaneous right. and that that was uh, I a I did really see that yeah it was fascinating documentary it happens I mean we 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 did an interview once in an apartment um where the family photos were taped to the walls and they didn't know uh which key was the key to the door and and, and we reported all those details because it was obvious it wasn't it wasn't their actual apartment. Now, to what extent is it possible as a reporter to report truthfully while located within North Korea? We always do our best to report truthfully uh, and accurately uh, and critically. Uh, and if we see something and we, and we believe that it's not truthful, we, we call it out for what it is. I, I've, never felt, I've never felt that any of our work has been that we've, we've certainly been deliberately deceptive. It doesn't mean that there aren't things, you know, they, the North Koreans look at it as, well, you know, I think the one time we, they said, well, you know, if I was coming to your house as a visitor, would you want me to look in your dirty closet or down in your dirty basement? Yeah. Uh, you know, or wouldn't you want me to look at my nice, you know, my nice polished silver in the dining room? Well, of course, if you're having house guests for a dinner party, uh, you want them to look, look, you know, you don't want them to, you know, poke through your, your bedroom for your unmade bed. But frankly, when you're a journalist, it's your job to, to look yeah. in those darker areas. That's that's the difference. I'm not, I'm not there for a dinner party as a house guest. I'm there as a journalist to cover the story objectively. Now, on the, on the flip side, is it possible for your interviewees to speak truthfully while located within North Korea? Most of the time, the interviewees are selected for us, which is why we always try to push to choose our own people on the fly. Um, I'll never forget, we shot a documentary in North Korea where I spoke with a with a with a, a woman who is a farmer. And I asked her, uh, what's the place in the world you'd most like to visit? And she said, I'd most like to visit the United States. And I was really taken aback because I've never had North Korean even admit to me that they want to visit the US. Yeah. And so I, I was a bit shocked and I said, wow, you're the first North Korean that I've ever heard actually say you want to visit the US, why? And she's looking around and you can feel, you know, the people around us sort of tensing up. And then she says, because I want to burn their land and I want to, you know, find out why they tortured our country. And then she kind of went on this long diatribe, uh, which, which certainly saved her, I think, yeah. from, from getting, uh, you know, written up negatively in the report that inevitably happens after everybody speaks with us. So I think sometimes, you know, students are chosen for us. Uh, people on the street are chosen for us. If there's a, you know, I mean, obviously, if we find someone who speaks great English, we know that they, they, this is probably not, you know, a spontaneous find. Right. Uh, we were we, on that same documentary shoot. We were driving by a beach and saw some high school students playing volleyball. And I said, hey, can we just pull over and like get some shots real quick? And, and we did. And we talked to them and we had some pretty candid conversations where they couldn't believe, you know, I was an American because they expected somebody a lot scarier looking than uh, me, yeah. although they did say I had the big nose they were expecting of, uh, from an American. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, but they, the, the miners later thought that my questions were really annoying. Like, you know, why are you asking them if they've heard about Facebook? Why are you asking them if they've heard about social media? No, in hindsight, Maybe the fact that they don't have Facebook is is turning out to be a blessing, considering all that's happening with Facebook, right? As, as we're learning, yeah, and Instagram yeah. And, and and all the rest, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, during your uh, your time, was there talk of CNN setting up a permanent bureau in Pyongyang, and and if so, would you have volunteered for a long term assignment there? We did have discussions. Uh, they never came to fruition because we always felt that we had a little more. Um, we, we thought that our access was just as good, if not better, than the journalists that we'd known that were actually on the ground on assignment there. Uh, I remember chatting with folks from, I won't say the other, the other news agency, but they were based there, but really frustrated by the limited access versus the access that we could get when we, we would go in. And we would have the added advantage of being able to leave and go back out, which I think allowed us to just continue to not feel any sort of pressure 
about the context of our reporting. Even if you're in the country, it's, it's a tremendous amount of pressure that's put on you as a journalist from, you know, because from your minders, but I say that's because the, they're, the, there's probably 10 or 100 times even more pressure on them. They're trying to be the buffer between you right. and, and, and somebody higher up. And the way that North Korea works, if there's one official in one department who's of a high rank who just happens to be having a bad day and happens to see something that you've said, and even if it's out of context, and they're really, really, really angry, that is going to get passed down to them. They're, and, you know, they're going to get a verbal lashing, and, and they, they expect that that's going to be delivered to you as well. I used to find it extraordinarily stressful to work in North Korea. I'd say my, you know, my early trips, it's just I felt like I was pulling my hair out. Once I understood a bit more about how the system worked and I kind of found my comfort zone, I actually, in later years, have had found North Korea to be a pretty relaxing place huh. because I'm able to unplug. Uh, you know, I bring some books that I want to read, uh, you know, uh, obviously keep them, you know, with me. Don't leave them behind. Uh, you know, listen to music uh, and just kind of uh, do my job and right. understand, you know, once you once you can understand all the dynamics at play, it's actually not as stressful of a place to work as I as I first found it to be in my in my earlier visit yeah now i imagine you you couldn't bring any books on korea into north korea for example right <laughs> right right yeah we always had to be careful uh I, I remember once uh one of my reporter colleagues you know whatsapp has a setting where it can automatically download images and um one of my reporter colleagues right before one of my trips right as my plane as my air choreo flight was taking off sent me a whatsapp image uh, and let's just say it was a it was a mocking image of 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 the leader uh, that automatically downloaded into my phone. Had no idea it was there. When they go through your phone and they search uh, and they uh. found it, there was like all of a sudden a crowd of people around the phone, and it was it was big trouble. Uh, you know, potentially. And I just said, hey, this was. I explained this was sent right as I was taking off. I'm really sorry. I'll make sure that this never. You know, this is outrageous. This is that this is there. And that was just an image on my phone. So you can uh. only imagine. Yeah. Uh, the repercussions if you bring in a piece of, of reading material that's in korean uh that could be considered uh i mean look that would be a violation of their <laughs> of their well it doesn't even have to be you're even a violation of the law if somebody reads it and they think that you're that you're a treasonous then you that's where the charges are going to come from right so we're very careful about what we bring in now of your 19 trips i imagine that the one uh just before the release of otto Warmbier would have been a particularly memorable uh trip right uh, can you tell us a little yeah, bit yeah you know that? it was yeah well that day we were so um preoccupied covering dennis rodman's return yeah. uh which was i believe deliberately timed to distract us because it was one of those events where they invited in you know all of the reporters who were based in pyongyang we were there as well at the airport you know doing this thing with rodman well at the very same time they're handing over Otto warm beer in a vegetative state so we didn't uh -huh. find out about his condition until hours later, um, ah. I, would, I was actually recovering from food poisoning myself on that day. I'd had a really bad case. And so to hear that he had food poisoning and, uh, you know, uh, and then may have, uh, I'm not sure how many of these details are actually public. So I have to be careful what I say about Otto Warmbier's situation, but, but I, I believe it's been reported publicly that, you know, he had food poisoning and then may have thrown up in his mouth and then and that would have cut off oxygen oh, I see. to his brain. Oh. Um, and we heard those details pretty early on. Uh, and the same thing, I, I would just been throwing up. So it was very, it was a very surreal, very sad time. I, I had spoken with Otto's parents right before we went in. I had letters from them in my backpack to give to Otto because every time we went in, we asked to speak with him. Every time that that request was met with with deaf ears. Mm. Um, and now we know why, because yeah. he wasn't able to speak. Um, and they kept that hidden for a very long time. So that was yeah. a really tough trip. It was very sad. Uh, very sad to think of of 
I always assumed that Otto would, you know, eventually he'd appear in North Korean propaganda and they'd parade him around and, uh, right. you know, and never, never imagined uh, that kind of outcome. Did you ever have any frank discussions with North Korean people in North Korea about that, whether they be your Absolutely. minders or other people? Absolutely. That night and, and in every, you know, meeting with an official sense. And look, I, I think even they struggled to justify keeping that, keeping him out of a Western hospital for so long. Yeah. Um, eventually, the narrative kind of became, well, you know, he did commit a crime. He was serving his, you know, they, they over time could find uh, more justification for the treatment. But I think initially, even they were quite shocked to learn. And I think that, I think probably very few people in North Korea really knew the full situation up until, yeah. up until you know, it came out publicly. Do you get the sense that um, that yeah, uh, whatever happened to him obviously wasn't planned, and that North Korea panicked and, and said, "Well, we have to keep him until he gets better. We can't let him go home in this state." Something like that. It was it was of more of a rest out of panic. I have no there's there there is no doubt in my mind that it was poor quality medical care. Uh, the guy, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's his age, just being told you're going to serve you know 15 years of hard labor. Uh, he had no, no way of knowing because he went on one of these tours, you know, young pioneer tours, <clears throat> having not researched that Americans would be released relatively quickly. It wouldn't have been 15 years. He would have been, you know, he would have had, hit, uh, you know, a group of guards assigned just to him. He would have been doing some manual labor six days a week, eight hours a day, three square meals a day. I mean, but he probably what he read was about these labor camps where people, you know, starve and die. Uh, that's not how foreigners, certainly not how American prisoners are treated in North Korea, but he would have had no way to know that. And I'm sure that they were keeping him quite isolated. The things they yeah. were telling him probably had him very frightened. Yeah. So you have that anxiety coupled with eating food that's questionable, and then you get food poisoning and you're throwing up. And so I think they, and probably he was having insomnia. So they, I think it's very plausible that in fact, they did give him a sleeping pill to try to help him sleep and then didn't observe him. And if, if you're, if you're throwing up and you're laying and you're laying, um, you know, on your back, yeah. uh, that's it. You know, this yeah. is how people get brain damage. And then I think at that point, people probably panicked because here you have this young blonde American student, and it's exactly the kind of prisoner that they would love to have for propaganda purposes and exactly the kind of prisoner they don't want to do what happened to. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I think, I think probably they just hoped that he'd wake up and, hoped, and took care of him as best they knew how, but that right. was of course uh, abhorrent and irresponsible and, and wrong that, it, that they would, didn't immediately notify the United States and try to get him proper medical attention outside the country. But I suspect that by the time that could have actually been arranged, it may still have been too late. We have, we'll never have any way to really yeah. know for sure. And, yeah. you know, from his parents' perspective, he was murdered in North Korea and, and, and nothing is going to change their view of that. And I, I imagine that if I was a parent, I would feel exactly the same way as they do. Now, uh, turning to your, uh, your other interviews that you did with the three uh, detained men, uh, Kenneth uh, and Matthew and, uh, and Jeffrey, um, and also with um, families of, of North Korean defector waitresses, uh, CNN and you took a bit of criticism for those interviews. Um, how did you feel about that? And, and looking back, do you feel that that criticism had any validity? We were criticized. Uh, I felt that there was still uh, something to be gained by speaking with them. I felt that there was something to be gained by showing people, showing their families, showing the world that they were okay, uh, and trying to be as transparent as possible about the process. So I understand that anytime you're reporting in North Korea, that's it's it, it's one of the places where it's the third rail of journalism. You really have to be quite careful where you step and how you step. But I felt that there was more advantage editorially and just from a 
from a human perspective to accept the access and do the interviews than not. And I felt like as I did more of those interviews, I was able to ask more candid questions. Uh, and you know, all of the Americans that we were granted interviews with ended up being released. Uh, I interviewed I interviewed South Koreans, and that wasn't the outcome that I'm aware of. I don't believe that they were released. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think the interviews might have been detrimental to their situation because they did speak a little more candidly. And and I think about that a lot. But I would still I would do it again. I would still if if, if these people were made available to us, I'd still do the interviews. I still would ask the questions that I asked because we're not there to serve as, as a propaganda arm, but you do have to, you, you know, and you have to often couch what the responses are saying from people who are inside North Korea. Yeah. And we, and we always tried to do that for our viewers, whether it was in our digital uh, or television stories, you know, to just continuously remind people that, that what you're hearing, you, they have to say this and here's why they have to say this, uh, that sort of thing. When I talked to Mike Chinoy, he also uh, mentioned about, um, North Korea using CNN as a way to get messages out to the American government or to the world. Uh, did you mm -hmm. feel that too, that, that North Korea sometimes uses CNN? Uh, but it, I mean, obviously, I guess it must be a, a mutual using because you get a, a great story and, and they get their message out. So it's kind of- I think it's reciprocal, absolutely. I, I, and I think that's why once they had a direct line to Trump's office that we, we were, our access wasn't uh, as, right. as frequent. And in fact, we haven't been back. I think it is all about if they feel they need to use the media, and not just CNN, but we were the one that they that they were using the most for a period of a number of years. But right, but we also gained something in return as well. And we got to take our viewers somewhere that's very difficult to go. And we went in with our eyes wide open and I stand by our reporting. I feel like we did some 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 important work. And I think that we helped to move the narrative in a in a more productive direction and get a lot of the global media, you know, away from the low-hanging fruit cliche reporting about North Korea to start to look at it. For what it is, which is a which is a serious, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a sovereign state that has its own beliefs and its own set of of, of values that are that are that are basically guided by one person at the yeah. very top, and then and then echoed by forcefully or you know some willingly by by you know almost twenty five million people or whatever the population is now in North Korea. So what well, twenty four twenty five million people, mm. twenty three million. It's yeah, and who knows? But but the point is. I stand by I stand by the work that we've done in North Korea, and I think that I think that I'm I'd like to go back and continue to do more reporting inside so North you would Korea go and back continue to ask hard questions. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. we're, we're working actively towards that. And, and if a chance does come in the future to uh, to open a full time bureau there for CNN, that uh, you might volunteer for, for the that? reasons that for the reasons that I explained to you, I'm not sure that we have an right. advantage by being based there. I think part of our advantage was being able to leave. Uh, if we had a more regular presence in North Korea, I certainly would want to be play a big role in that. Whether or not I'd want to be, uh, it would it, there'd be a lot of factors to consider before making that kind of decision. But I would yeah. never rule anything out. I would I always have an open mind about this sort of thing, uh, and in some ways, it could be really fascinating to. You know, the problem is, is that when you're when you're living in North Korea, and I'm sure you have plenty of sources who are diplomats who could tell you what life is like, you spend a lot of time kind of behind your the gates of your compound with with uh, limited ability to move around. Now, diplomats before COVID hmm. could drive some areas. They could go to Wonsan, I believe they could go, you know, they could get out of Pyongyang. And if that was the kind of access that could be granted a reporter based there then that would be a very interesting proposition for me right. uh, just to, but still, I, I'm not sure that in terms of like the stories that we get and the access that we get, that we would get any better than what we've gotten by going in and out over the years. Do you know if journalists who are in North Korea from 
uh, friendly governments, say uh, Chinese journalists or Cubans, do they have that kind of access that you're talking about? I'm not sure. I mean, I, 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 journalists that I've spoken with from other networks in other countries were pretty depressed and frustrated by how little access they were getting most wow. of the time. Okay, and, and that's even the, the friendly, you know, friendly folks, uh, Russians as well, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to call out any particular agency, no. but let's just say that countries you'd expect that they'd you know, be, they'd, they'd roll out the red carpet and let them go wherever they want. It's not yeah. always the case. And again, the stories that you end up covering is a lot of like, uh, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going on field inspections with the leader. You know, you're covering a ribbon cutting or a new hospital or a new restaurant opening. I mean, it's, that's the kind of stuff that they want to show you. Hmm. Uh, you're not getting the high level interviews and those meetings necessarily that right. you would want, that you would hope you could get if you're based in a place, because being right. based in a place in, in, in most countries means you have access to, you have the potential to have meetings and dinners with officials and kind of yeah. build those relationships and work your sources. That's a much harder thing to do in North Korea, where there is a, you know, there is a wall that is up, both literal and figurative. There's a wall between you and regular North Korean people. Right. And any time that you are even caught, you know, seen conversing with a regular North Korean, for you, that might be end of it. But for them, there's going to be a report written up. They're going to be questioned. Right. Their name's going to be taken down. So it's, it's, there's a lot of pressure not to ever really, other than on your direct, you know, the people that you're working with, your minders, your, you know, your, your, the, the officials that are directly in your charge. And then of course the unseen officials that you've never actually met or, but that are listening in on everything yeah. the whole time. <laughs> I'll never forget one time we got a, we got a ridiculous bill. It's like, it was like thousands of dollars for soft drinks. And I remember, you know, being in my room and I'm, and I'm, and I'm pointing, you know, my head towards this old, you know, the old radio that, you know, is probably where the listening device is or one of them. And I said, how can you believe soft drinks? And like, you know, 10 minutes later, we get knocked on the door. Hey, we revised your bill. Uh, sorry, this was a mistake. This, you know, it's actually, <laughs> you know? Wow. so yeah, there's always, there's always the unseen minders. Uh, but Gee. in terms of, you know, authentic which hotel did you stay in by the way? Uh, we stayed in a few. I, my favorite is probably the Corio Hotel, although I've heard they've, locked, they've like boarded up a lot of the windows now. So the beautiful views that you had, you might not have. Right. Um, Potongong is also really nice, actually. Uh, you know, my least favorite would be, you know, on the doomed island where yeah. usually all the tourists go. That's, I would say that's, 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 that's where that's I've stayed least, every the young, time. The Yungakdo, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, that's my, probably my least favorite. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly love to get a chance to see the other hotels uh, one day if and when North Korea uh, opens again. Um, Will, I'm curious, is there anything that you learned by the time of your last reporting visit to North Korea in 2017 that you wished you had known or thought of on your first trip in 2014? Oh, gosh, so much. Uh, you know, I mean, I went in 2014 and just was like, oh, you know, this is like a time warp. And wow, people have cell phones and like all this stuff. You know, I, how do they pay for them? I mean, you know, just uh, uh, there, there's so much more that you understand about how the North Korean system works. Um, and also you understand that there's that there for some people in that system, if you happen to fit a particular mold and be from a particular family, they're perfectly content and happy in that system. I would say that that's unfortunately, if you tend to stray outside of the outside of the accepted circle in any way, uh, life is going to be pretty uh, unpleasant for you. Uh, but there are, I, I, you know, I don't think I knew when I first went in, that there are North Koreans that you know, not just the political elite, but even just regular folks that, that actually are perfectly content with their lives, maybe because they don't know better, maybe because they like the security of having everything decided for them. Right. I also know, though, that there's a lot of people, certainly, you know, there's a lot of people who probably have, you know, maybe unspoken dreams and aspirations that go well beyond whatever assignment they've been given, and they're not going to have that opportunity to even entertain that as an option because they are in a society that is so heavy and that is so predetermined, uh, you know, by 
by factors that are not in your control, what your life is going to be, what you're going to do. And of course, those who run away have to make the sacrifice of giving up all access, possibly forever to their families, uh, or, you know, at least, you know, maybe never being able to see them face to face and having to pay huge amounts of money to, uh, you know, to, to send them back, you know, things. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a huge sacrifice that someone is, has to make for having the freedom to choose their own path. And then, of course, for those who arrive in South Korea and they realize, hey, their law degree or their doctorate um, is yeah. pretty much meaningless in South Korea. And here's your job as a custodian or a teacher. I mean, you know, so it's, it's uh, the division of the Korean Peninsula is a really sad situation. And, and the Korean people have this imposed upon them by 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 two powers uh, that kind of just decided that this was how it was going to be. And to think of how many lives and families that's affected and more, you know, it, it, it's just uh, it makes me quite sad to think about. And I. And, and the farther apart that these two societies grow in terms of even the, the, the dialect that they're speaking, um, you know, this whole talk of reunification, you, you, you realize it's like there's just really you can't see how that's going to happen. And yeah. uh, and yet they are they are one Korean people with a shared ancestry, a shared history. And a lot of there's a lot of similarities and a lot, you know, you walk around Seoul, you walk around Pyongyang and there will be things that you see you know even like the way that the guys are dressed when they go to the office in Seoul you know kind of similar in some ways to what you see in Pyongyang you know and and the, and then of course you know there's food that is that is that is delicious yeah. on both north and south i'd say the cold noodles were a little better in the north but yeah. uh you know there's there's uh and you know the kimchi is probably better in the south but like there's just so much there's so much that that that, that is shared it's a shame that most right. south koreans are never going to have a chance to see that side of the of, of the peninsula, unless barring some really drastic change. What was it like to interview the uh, the families of um, of some North Korean defectors who are now in South Korea? That was that uh, a stressful or, or an emotional experience for you? Well, you just really feel very sad for them. Um, again, because their loved ones made a decision that, at least publicly, they have to denounce. Um, if they're if they're put in front of a camera, they're doing it because they're need, needing to save their own family's standing, you know, or preserve their own family's standing. Because when somebody leaves, when someone runs away, that's that's potentially. It's, I don't think that families, entire families, are assassinated, or at least you know that's not always what what would happen. I think sometimes, but you do lose a lot of standing, you lose a lot of position. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was mentioning that apartment with the family pictures taped to the wall, you know, we were taken there to show, look, these people still live in a really great apartment it clearly wasn't it wasn't theirs um and so you you know that the families have suffered uh quite a toll um for this decision but i also wonder if you know of course they could never say this i wonder if they're secretly and never would say this out loud but secretly hoping that that you know their 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 loved ones are having a better life and maybe have more to eat and have right more freedom out there or maybe they do genuinely feel that how could anybody want to leave how could anybody want to leave the system uh how could they do this and maybe they you know that that hatred that's that's projected and expressed is is genuine but i i i tend to doubt that it's it's completely genuine when they're just totally calling their loved one the scum of the earth i'm sure that there's love there and 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 sadness there sometimes north korea presents uh people to the world media who have come back after leaving, you know, uh, the sort of the re-defectors. Yeah. Have any of them been made available to you for interview? And have you ever interviewed any of those people? Not that I can recall off the top of my head, somebody who's, who's left and come back. Uh, but I understand why people would do that. I think it's some of the factors that we discussed earlier. 
which is uh, getting to, getting to the outside and realizing that in capitalism, it's not like everybody, not everybody that's wealthy. Yeah. It's only a small number of people. And in fact, you know, in, in many cases, I think their lives are more difficult. And I, I, I can see I can see why people might want to what might want to return even some of, you know, I'm trying to think, to be honest with you, we've done so many stories, but I don't recall ever actually talking to someone who's come back. I've talked to people who, who said they wanted to come to go back, right. but were not able to. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't know if, I don't know if they, if, if I've actually met anybody who's been out and that has come back in. What advice would you give to other journalists who want to report on or investigate North Korea? Well, I would urge them to follow the law if they visit there uh, as best they can. And, you know, try. I mean, I know that sometimes uh, people pose as tourists and and uh, and try and do some you know some really interesting investigative work. The only thing I would say is that that comes with a great risk mm. uh, if you're and, caught, and not just to uh, yourself, but to people who are in your group. Absolutely, in your minder. I mean, you know, you know, just imagine whatever the person who's visiting the country does wrong, the person tasked with handling them is going to pay a huge price. So I, I mean, my number one priority when I go into North Korea is that I want to get out with my team. And that that's always the first priority. Um, and so we try to operate within the rules, doing our jobs as journalists as best we can. Certainly, like I said before, I'm not deleting video and I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I'm still doing, I'm still looking with a hard, you know, with a hard lens at everything that we can see and reporting critically about everything we're seeing, but not breaking the law. That that's, to me, that's a red line that I would never want to risk my team's safety for that. So I would just urge people to be careful, mm -hmm. um, to be respectful, uh, to go in well-researched, but also try to go in with a somewhat, if it's your first time with a fresh set of eyes, you know, but also a, a critical set of eyes, you know, don't just take everything that you're seeing and that's being told to you at face value. And you look forward to going back in when that opportunity arises, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a play. I miss, there are certain aspects of North Korea that I miss. I, I mo mostly, I miss the people that we work with there. Right. Uh, they're good people. And, you know, when you're, when you're working with someone for six years, seeing them regularly, you develop, uh, you know, a, a, again, I, as much of friends as you can be with somebody under those circumstances, because clearly there is always going to be boundaries that are there that neither side can cross, but we've been able to work together effectively for quite a long time and overcome some pretty significant differences ideologically, editorially, even stylistically in terms of how we shoot stories. I mean, every trip into North Korea is a learning process for them and for us. You know, we teach them how the Western media tells stories, how we shoot, why we shoot close-ups, why it's not all long shots like what they would see on their state media. You know, they look at a close-up as a trying to zoom in and find something embarrassing. We look at a close-up as an opportunity to get closer and, and, and go deeper into a person or a character of a story. So- even those stylistic things that they initially try to control over the years, they became more hands-off, allowed us to do our job. Of course, that was because we also built up trust with them that we're going to do our job responsibly and, and, and we're going to do the best. We're going to tell the stories in the best way that we can, in the most effective way that we can, but we're going to tell them critically using our, our editorial standards. North Korean media is all state media. Did, did you get the sense that the North Koreans you're working with could see could understand that CNN is not part of the American government, or did they see it also in the same lens that the North Korean media works? I think the North Koreans that we interacted with directly understood that, but I think it's very difficult uh, to get higher level officials to understand that, to, mm. to, to, to separate CNN from the government. They just, and so as a result, relations between the US 
and North Korea are, are volatile, and that also impacts our, you know, our access, even though we actually have nothing to do with the United States government. And if you actually watch our coverage, you know, we are just probably more critical of our own government, even than the governments that we're visiting and covering. I mean, we try to hold every government to the same standards, including our own. We are not state media. We've never been state media. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't, we're not, we're not sometimes assumed to be state media or treated as such by countries with different systems. Yeah. yeah. Uh, final question, Will, are you writing or do you plan to write a book on your experiences reporting inside North Korea? Yes, uh, that, will happen someday, but I feel like the story is unfinished. Um, right. Let's see. Let's see what happens in trip number 20. <laughs> OK, I hope that uh, I hope that comes soon. I have my doubts uh, just under the COVID thing uh, that it could take another year or two, but I hope that it happens soon for you. Thanks, Jacko. It's really great to chat with you. And uh, how many times have you been in, uh, by the way? Uh, now, if you count my trip to uh, Kumgang Sun in 2006, then I've been in four times, uh, but three times okay. to Pyongyang proper. Uh, and then, the, yeah, that fourth trip to Kumgang Sam. So, uh, well, hopefully, when they when they open back up, whenever probably when everybody's fully vaccinated. So, I I I, I, I share your suspicion. It's not going to be for a while, maybe a year or two, but maybe we'll end up on the same trip together. Maybe we'll get a different hotel this time. I do hope so. That would be fun. We could uh, we could have a drink in the bar at the uh, up the top of the Cordial Hotel, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, you know, the Taedong beer, uh, Taedong is quite tasty. I, I miss it for sure. <laughs> it certainly is. Well, I want to thank you once again, Will Ripley, for joining us on the NK News podcast. And don't forget, listeners, you can find Will on Twitter at Will Ripley CNN. Thanks, Will. Hey, thanks so much, Jacko. You have a great one. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Also, with questions, feedback, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating the podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. Thank you.